Boston's loaded with creative. If you watch any Hollywood film, any any comedy, people are coming out of Boston. It's time for Boston to start accepting that we have way more creatives than we think, and we need to use those people more. Hey, it's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. That is the voice of Chris Cardoza. He is the founder of Doza Visuals, a Boston-based media production company, affectionately referred to as Doza. He's someone I came into contact with and immediately fell in love with and was really impressed by the quality of his work and the purpose behind it. Doza does work with brands such as Reebok, ESPN, TB12 Sports, Vice, and countless others. Probably most interesting to me is the work he's doing on the nonprofit side. He's working with the nonprofit out of Boston called Shooting Touch, where he's gone to Rwanda a bunch over the years and shot and produced documentary films about the work Shooting Touch does to help um, use basketball to help families in Rwanda and even back in Boston. Those is someone that being a storyteller himself, he flips the script on me in this podcast and at times starts asking me some questions and somehow gets me nerding out on my love for prehistory. So you're in for a treat. You have two Boston-based storytellers just getting to know each other and uh, hopefully sharing some pretty interesting insights about the future of storytelling. Enjoy. And before we move on to the episode, a quick update for the community. In 2023, we're expanding the Boston Speaks Up platform, adding to our distribution channels, and offering more ways for local businesses to support and collaborate with Boston Speaks Up. There are immediate opportunities to sponsor the Boston Speaks Up podcast, where you can become a featured co-brand in our multi-platform distribution that spans social media, Boston Business Journal, Boston O, and the Boston O Beat newsletter, as well as new channels, including the Value Creation Labs blog and newsletter. We encourage folks to contact us at team at valuecreationlabs.co to learn more and discuss the possibilities. Thanks. Now on to the episode. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Chris Cardoza, the founder and CEO of Doza Visuals, also known as the Bulldoza. If you've ever hired him for some creative work in town, uh, Chris Cardoza, it's good to talk to you. That'll probably be the last time I, talk, I call you Chris or Cardoza on this call. I'll probably just go with Doza the rest of the way. Uh, for listeners that don't know you yet, that haven't had the, the privilege, can you just share with folks like what you're up to with Doza visuals and some of the work? Yeah, sure. You do? First of all, Zach, you have such a calming voice. <laughs> when when I started listening to your, your uh, Speaks Up uh episodes, you know, sometimes I start to doze off just because it's a little, it's calming, very informative, but calming. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I started Doza Visuals about actually 10 years ago this week. Um, I was a video production temp at the time at Reebok. Um, I had pretty quick little story about that. I, I had applied for that position back in college at UMass Amherst, and I had no editing experience, no um, really video experience at all, but I was like, this would be really cool. I want to go work with athletes. And I showed up to the meeting and they were like, all right, cool. Like, what can you edit for us? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> so after that, I didn't get the job, obviously. And then after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to edit. So I learned how to edit, got this um, 
reapplied for that job after college and I landed it. And that launched my career. And ever since then, after that one year stint at Reebok, I've uh, been producing, shooting, editing, um, directing, and photographing people in an authentic format for brands such as Reebok, TB12 Sports, um, the ICA in Boston, uh, all sorts of brands and companies. And I've been traveling the world at the same time. So it's been a lot of fun and it's been a pretty crazy career. That's really cool. So in some ways, Reebok kind of, they kind of helped launch, launch your career. It's insane. It, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening have worked at large brands or even like just creative brands like Reebok in general. The network you build at a company like that just lasts forever. You know, there, what's the phrase? The Is it three degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon? I, yeah. Once I started working at Reebok, I think it became two degrees to literally anybody in the world. So I could message somebody and just be like, hey, do you know so-and-so? You know, I'm about to work with this athlete. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know his manager or I know. And it just, and then everybody at Reebok, you know, everybody leaves their job eventually. And at this time, point in life, I think, you know, career spans at one company is only like three years tops. So, you know, if I made some really great relationships there and when people started going to other companies that really blossomed to new work and over 10 years, it's really, really worked out. But for a few years, Reebok was really my only client and that was really terrifying yeah. and exciting at the same time. It's interesting. It the freelancers in the modern age, like 2023, it's crazy. We're in 2023 now. It, I really would say solo entrepreneurs have a real benefit to that point you just made about how folks don't stay at companies for three, uh, three years might even be an overestimate, right? Because we're not our parents' generation. Like we're both, you're also a millennial, right? I am. Right? Yeah. So we're, we're proud, millennials and proud millennials. yeah, proud, proud millennials here. And, um, which is just, I was thinking about the other day, like I'm on that, like maybe slightly older, I don't, I don't know where, I, but where the millennials generally speaking, like kind of had like part of their childhood and like adolescence was in the nineties, but then also like we were going to like high school in the two, early two thousands, but then also like start our careers at the end of the two thousands. And I don't know, it's a really interesting sort of maybe, maybe worth picking up on that, on that thread too. But the thread I wanted to double click on is your sort of point about all the, the cascading network and how it actually is for young people. It's, it's, it's advantageous. And, and I guess the environment is more um, advantageous for folks to be entrepreneurs, be consultants, be freelancers, however they want to view and position themselves because the network you have in any given year, two, three year stretch is going to move around and work at different companies. Whether they choose to be freelancers or not, people are going to move. If they choose to be full-time job to full-time job to full-time job, they're going to work different full-time jobs. And without, you know, they will remain nameless, but my silent partner who introduced us met you at Reebok. So it's like just tying that thread back to like why we're on today and why I've been able to connect deeply with you over the last couple of years, hire you, be grateful to work with you on some really cool video sizzles for some hot 
tech companies in, 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 at least in our case, you've worked for some pretty big, cool name brands. And I tend to work with some name brands and then also some like some nerdy tech companies. I think a lot of folks will know Axelar, um, which is a web, web three infrastructure interoperability platform. Um, big player, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of money behind that, that, that group. And my pal Galen Moore, former editor in chief of, uh, American Inno is over there. And he was like, Hey, I got this amazing CEO. He's able to describe like the most complicated things in, in web three, like to, to, you know, in, 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 in layman speak. And I need to capture that. And, and I need to be able to speak vis-a-vis investors, vis-a-vis the employees and sort of like vis-a-vis the market. And, um, you know, working with you on a video like that and, and meeting some of the, the, the team that you have behind you and the folks that you bring in, like, like Harry scales, um, it really kind of, it reopened my eyes back to like what a what an amazing creative community exists in Boston that's sort of like hiding in plain sight, if you will. Uh, and so, yeah, just like, I'm curious just if you want to double click on on that a little bit. And I know I'm going a little out of order from like the pre-podcast Q&A we were doing to kind of just align. But I'd love for like, I'd love, like we have people's attention early in this podcast. They got to grounding like oh wow doza like he came up through reebok he worked tb12 sports like cool in a little bit we'll talk about your trip to rwanda with the goat the greatest of all time boston sports reporter jackie mcmullen talk to me though about the creative community in boston and 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 its relationship with like the business community and and what you feel like and, and what you feel like that relationship is and and how you feel how you hope that relationship sort of evolves. Yeah. You know, from what I see at companies in Boston, there's this riff in internally at all these companies, you know, Boston's such an academic data driven, but still old school city when it comes to really just mindset in general. Um, you know, my favorite thing about Boston is that we're a small town, you know, everybody calls it a town, but you can't go anywhere around the world that Boston hasn't affected, you know? So Boston's still stuck a little bit in that academic mindset, but we have, we're starting to evolve into storytelling more and people want to do it. But I think I'm just hearing, you know, people still don't see the value in it where you might see the value in New York or LA more because it's just more common, but Boston's loaded with creatives, you know, if you watch any Hollywood film, any, any comedy, people are coming out of Boston. You know, it's just, you know, you're talking about Dane Cook, um, Chris Evans, you know, all the, t- so many celebrities are coming out of Boston, but we still have so many right here. And I see it in my world, in it. but the most beautiful part of Boston, it's really tight knit. So I'll be walking into a shoot at Reebok and I'll run into the, the same four photographers every time. And everybody's working at the same companies um, and it's really, really close. But I think it's time for Boston to start accepting that we have way more creatives than we think. And we need to use those people more, but they don't need to be going to New York or LA. They can stay right here. No, that's well said. And another, and another way to put an end cap on that. And we have way more stories to tell. Because there's a little bit of like the the same companies are investing in the same storytelling with the same people, and there's you know 
if we just go by the simple 80-20 rule, like 20% of the market is is embracing really like just appropriately modern visual storytelling. And then 80% of the market is still like and you, you need anchor, you need traditional anchor marketing content, ebooks, white papers, whatever you want, however you want to refer to it, you know, written analytical content. But you also need to engage people and have a, a visual identity and 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 a way to visually express and connect to people so that folks want to work for you, work with you, and invest in you. And, and, and I, I definitely do see that trend changing. Um, I'd say more broadly speaking, like the types of companies that the Value Creation Labs has started to work with the last couple of years. Uh, on like big digital transformation and brand identity projects are backed by private equity. The board of directors is heavily involved in the decision. And there's a consensus that brand and, and visual identity is really important. So yeah, I think the time is shifting for sure. Everybody wants to do it. I think there, there has to be a mindset change in the city at the very top, you know, the CEOs who are signing off on all these budgets. Yeah. Um, because yeah. let's be honest, in 2023, after what we've learned after the pandemic, there's no better way to scale your business right, that, right now than great storytelling through content, especially short form content right now on TikTok and Reels. You know, we, you and I have these conversations all the time. I think companies are starting to learn, you know, yes, they have to be, get, have great products and services, but they also have to become their own media brands as well and publish their own content. Now this has been going on for a while, I think, but the pandemic forced everybody to really look internally. Like, are we doing this properly? Are we doing this enough? And frankly, I don't think anybody's doing it enough. I think everybody needs to be. Now I'm biased because I'd be the one making it, but it's just the truth that there's no better way to scale your company right now than content. Mm -hmm. Well, just stay on this topic a little longer too, since we're since we're in this 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 area of our discussion, and without getting into pricing and and specifics, I think that's like also a, a bit of a my push and plea on a, on some of the creative community, not you, because you you're very reasonable and fair in the way that you price and you look at things, but you just hit on it like you think in a very like modern storytelling way like you were spinning my head around a month or so ago and we were talking about catching up for 2023 and you're talking about this sort of like like reels tiktok reels approach to creating derivative content off of off of more you know premium captured like you know video that you're that you're working and and then in your post-production lab you're really thinking about you're thinking about tiktok you're thinking about instagram etc you're thinking about asset packages that can sort of layer out quarter over quarter and give companies like a, a steady drumbeat, a, you know, a, a public pulse, if you will, et cetera. And I look at some of the notable companies, or I should say like, you know, film companies, video production studios in Boston. And uh, I mean, some of the prices are like 20, 30. And, and I'm, I've done the math in my head, like 50 X what it should be. Um, and there's some really, ins- and so I think, you know, some notable companies in the market are, have also like kind of just over indexed on these like big fat, like quarter of a million, half a million, you know, projects to, to produce videos for, you know, the, the sliver, you know, top 1% of like 
banks that can afford to like invest in those commercial videos. Spoiler alert, they aren't in 2023. Right. Um, and you know, people can read the tea leaves on that. If they listen to the, uh, the, 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 the switch up of the, the, sponsorship or lack thereof at the top of this podcast, wink, wink, (laughs) nod, nod. But the days are numbered for like, oh yeah, we're going to shoot a commercial video for you. We're going to charge 350 grand for it. Okay. Um, Interesting. Um, Well, my counter to that is I have a $180,000 budget (laughs) for all of my marketing this year. Um, And I'm looking to do video, you know, maybe video can fit in for 50 grand, but is there, but can, but I also need a marketing strategy against that video post production content so that it can feed my marketing systems so that I have things to market to the world for the year. Um, and, you know, where I do think Boston's film production community falls short is that we like, they do take a little bit of a old school approach to production costs and i would say like a lot of like weight a lot of a lot of fat a lot of excess um i'm curious your comments on that because i do because 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 the because word gets out about that and then that's why they go and they find and, and and companies in boston dismiss local or they dismiss video or they go to other cities and you know i think there's a little so i so i wouldn't put it all on the I like CEOs need to make decisions and, and embrace things, but they may be hearing about the exorbitant costs of the, of the few notable video production firms in Boston. And they're just like, well, I, it's not even, a, it's like a non-starter. Like it's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still a decent investment and it is a, but it's, I think it's super important investment, but the days of needing a crew of like 20 people on set with, you know, oh god, RVs and trailers. It's so unnecessary at this point. Um, th- there's places for it, but like, there's no reason to do it. You, the equipment now in video, you know, your iPhone's shooting almost as good video as some of the best cameras you're going to see on that set. And the amount of people like myself who are capable of shooting really, really high quality video that's going to look just as good as these $100,000 budget videos with crews that exist in Boston and New England. It's only growing every day. It's, you know, every kid coming out of college wants to do this now, or they want to be a YouTuber. Um, So the way I've always approached it, just because I've kind of been repulsed by these large scale productions um, is I like to look at everything from a documentary filmmaker lens. And that's kind of where I, you know, originated. And that's some of the courses I took at UMass is really where I became obsessed with it. And I think it's become insanely valuable for 2023 because a documentary filmmaking style is typically um, a small footprint, right? It's like myself and, maybe two other people. It's the client, an assistant here, an audio guy, maybe. Um, And you're doing these interviews and you're really getting to know your subject over a long period of time. And and I mean long period, it could just be two days, but I'm a millennial, so that feels long now. Um, So, but you're, you're capturing more intimate, emotional stories 
But at the same time, you're able to record these long interviews. And then maybe you're making a two-minute piece, three-minute piece out of that. But you're also able to catalog that long interview. You transcribe it, use it for blogs. And then you chop up the long interview for Instagram Reels and TikTok into hundreds of assets if you really wanted to. So I just think the value of these smaller creatives, these one-off creatives, is much higher than hiring these larger agencies we're just going to bloat it. Now, there's always a place for that. You know, they're shooting Super Bowl ads if you want to just look at it. But mm-hmm. half the time, that's just like yeah. so that you say you you did this for your company. It's kind of like awards, right? It's like winning an award at Cannes. It's just it means nothing for your brand. It's just that you said you won an award so that you can tell your pals, you know, at the bar later that you won an award. Don't get me wrong. I like awards and I, I have awards for my photography and stuff it might help in a meeting but it it all comes down to just like in intimate quality storytelling and in this day and age with the equipment that's cheap and the amount of people who know how to do this now and every kid coming out of college knows how to do this now um i don't i don't see why there's any barrier to entry for any company to start creating video content yeah, that's well said. And I love you mentioned Super Bowl because this podcast will come out around the Super Bowl. And as someone who's worked at the intersection of media and technology with a lot of advertising technology measurement companies over the years, I've 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 been part of Super Bowl ad measurement command centers on Super Sunday and like worked the Super Bowl and like dished out data to reporters that are quantifying like the attention around the Super Bowl ads, right? Because it's the it's the time of the year where at the TV ads are most center stage. Uh, it, 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 there's no other time, like right. Uh, but I am so happy that 2023 is the year of performance. It was the theme at CES. You know, the consumer electronics show that kicks off the year across industries. Like everyone is kind of getting hip to the entrepreneurial mindset. And I think the way you describe how you're thinking about transcribing the content and maybe the, the, the ultimate outputs two, three minutes, but you're, but you're transcribing it in the blog post and your derivatives. Like that's how a business owner thinks. And, you know, the take, and it, it's taking the, the move that I suspect needs to happen and will more easily happen at the more boutique, smaller agency level is an embrace of like more partnership approach. We're sitting at the table to C-suite. We are, we're like thinking like a business owner and it's how can we extract the most value out of a production? And so it needs to be less about, oh, we're, we're a vendor and we have a process and we produce this grandiose output. Spending $5 million on a Super Bowl ad yeah, like math wise, like maybe then all of a sudden it's like, oh, spending 300, 400, 500 grand on the creative. Oh, that makes sense. I'm spending 5 million just on a placement during the Super Bowl. And then that's my ad campaign for the year. But what's the, what's the return on that investment, right? What's the, what's the strategy behind that? And I, those are the kind of stories I'm interested in, in reading this year in Digiday, Advertising Age, Ad Week. Like I'm curious to see sort of like, what are the cool, sexy, viral ads that that air? You know, what or what or or don't get to the eighty four lumber ads of this year? Like, whatever those stories are going to be. But I'm really kind of curious of like 
what creative agencies have stepped up and have uh, have partnered and taken less of a vendor approach to the Super Bowl ad production and and the Super Bowl ad is the launch of some long go-to-market strategy that simply started day one was the Super Bowl. And so I think, does it make sense to spend $5 million on a Super Bowl ad? That's a lot of money. It, But it might make sense if you're kicking off and you're launching this deliberate program of content and storytelling over time. And, and to your point about documentary filmmaking, now I'm really going off on a riff. If you start thinking about like every brand is a, is a, is a media publisher, is a storyteller, like every brand think like a TV, like a, like a TV program or like a network. All right. $5 million Super Bowl ad is just the way you're launching your media IP in the world. And look at gaming and toy companies that launch shows that are popular on YouTube, but they become media companies and they get so good at their media storytelling and their, and their, their programming that they actually create inventory to in a whole new monetization against their content before they even go and sell more dolls, um, which is like a really viable model in the toy and gaming industry right now. And I think that, you know, that I commend the, I commend the agencies that sort of take that approach. Um, but I think it's still few and far between. And I, and I'm curious if, if, if that, how much that resonates with you. Yeah, no, I think I get frustrated when there's projects and you find out it's just, we shot something, it's awesome, and that was it. Like, okay, you threw the video up on YouTube or in a much grander scale, you threw it up on a, on a Super Bowl ad, which, <clears throat> excuse me, probably is worth it, right? The value of a, the eyeballs on a Super Bowl ad is insane. But you just, you have all this, Right. It probably goes back to my days at Reebok. You know, when I was a temp, they would throw me in the um, their video archives and I would just sit there all day digitizing. And we started, okay, we have all this. Why not keep using it? Like, there's so many ways to use it. And same deal with anything shot these days. Needs to be cataloged, um, you know, metadata in there so that you can quickly find it and still recycle it throughout, God, the next 10 years. Um, because there's so many outlets for video, especially right now and stills like TikTok and reels or YouTube shorts. Um, you gotta have somebody who's just constantly going through that and creating new assets and, and that somebody can be internally or somebody is someone like me. Um, you know, like you said, I, I've been starting programs I call content partnerships, you know, rather than doing one-off projects with brands. Um, I come at, I come to them and say, Hey, why don't we do this over a long period of time? Like six months to a year. Um, we'll do a shoot every month. Here's the package. And I'm consistently cutting out short form content out of that long form day. So we might make a two to three minute piece every month, but we're producing, you know, 15 assets out of that. And if you're shooting a Super Bowl ad, you're going to have so much footage, so much. So many assets that you can repurpose and all you have to do is just make sure you have the rights to that and then hire an editor and editor can just let the editor go crazy. And there's nothing more fun than going through someone's content library and creating new fun storytelling pieces for them. Spoken, uh, 
spoken from a a place of of being a true post production nerd that you are. <laughs> it's like true. You, I think a lot like a, like a lot of creatives like that. I mean, as a as more of a writer storyteller, like I love like mining through like old brand guides and and company manifestos and and pitch documents and like kind of absorbing a lot of things and synthesizing it into like new and fresh stories. Um, so I totally relate to you um, as more like the, the, the post-production write, you know, written storyteller in me. <laughs> well, one of my, uh, just to tell you a quick story, one of my favorite projects yeah. I had, I did once was, uh, but I, I was kind of one of the people who would follow JJ Watt around for Reebok for years. Um, they signed him, God, probably like six years ago and said they're going to start making him a shoe, which was really cool. He made this really cool trainer. And they'd send me out um, to just film really like social content with them and videos. And after a while, somebody messaged me from Reebok. I was like, hey, like, can we just, if we dump off tons of footage to you, you know, we're talking designer text messages to him, um, sketches that nobody's seen. Can you just make something out of it? And we created an awesome video. You can probably find it on YouTube somewhere. It's like the making of JJ watch shoes. And that to me, that's so fun to just get dumped content and say, create something out of it. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's for me, the editing platform is my canvas and seeing all that data mm. and footage. I can start um, forming a story out of it. It's really exciting. Are we ready for a fun, fun public challenge yeah. that, that I'll share here on the podcast and then folks will be able to listen and then like go and seek it out. So I think for, for listeners, one of the exciting things about doing this podcast together is sort of what you just hit on, which is at the end of this, you know, we're using Riverside FM for the first time, which is a new tool for me, but a tool you use a lot, use it with TB12 sports, et cetera, those clients you mentioned. And at the end of this, we'll have audio, but we're also going to have video and I'm, I'm excited for you to have sort of like the raw material, the bosses speaks up branded assets, like the Doza visuals, value creation lab, sort of like logos, assets, and just like coalesced visions that we sort of share on things. And Hey, challenge. It sounds like challenge accepted for you coming up with some like exciting ways to create content from this big canvas that we'll have at the end of this discussion. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up yeah, with. Yeah. The only weird part is I have to look at myself and listen to myself. <laughs> like, God, what a, what a hell. <laughs> but no, it'll be yeah, fun. I, it'll be fun. <laughs> well, you know, at least you get my soothing ASMR. That's right. Voice. That's right. You There's might keep you putting me to sleep, which I need sleep right now. Zach. There. I need sleep. There you there you go. You, do. you know what? We're gonna have to get into that actually. Sure. Um, well, so let's so let's 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 go back. Let's start. Let's get. A, let's unpack a little bit on the personal side because the entrepreneur that you are, uh, it started at an early age. And you know, talk about growing up in Easton, Mass. Talk about the family business a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Easton, <laughs> Massachusetts, about 35, 40 minutes south of Boston. I'm I'm the third or fourth generation off the boat. And in Easton, and guess what? I'm back in Easton, um, which I never thought I would say, but I am. Um, I grew up here and my family owned a pizza shop. We owned a pizza shop down in Fall River. And from the age... What was it called? It was called Pizza Etc. There's actually a Pizza Etc. in <laughs> Brighton, uh, which I drive by every day, which is really <laughs> funny to see. But, you know, so I grew up 
with entrepreneurship ingrained in my blood <laughs> in the most basic mm-hmm. sense, you know, the, the most, I don't know what the right word is, but natural entrepreneur is your small business, family owned business. I mean, that's the American dream in general too. So from age five until I think it was around 17, we worked there almost every day. You know, the five of us in my family, um, I was making boxes, folding boxes in the back. My parents would pay me five, a nickel a box. Um, you know, I was probably five or six years old doing that with my sister having competitions. And then eventually we, uh, you know, evolved to, I was actually on the pizza line making pizzas probably by age 10. Uh, you know, I think our record was 150 nice. pizzas in one day for, for BFI because they had a headquarters nice. nearby. And then in, at the same time, my brother who was older than me was basically writing up proposals for them because they did a lot of corporate catering. And, you know, he was only 12 years old writing proposals, which is unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. And to this day, were you in the middle? Like, so your brother was 12, you were 10, like, yeah, exactly. There's there's three years from my brother and I'm two years older than my sister. Um, okay. So we just had a really fascinating life living really two different lives. We were living in fall river, which is, you know, socioeconomically, uh, a, a lower economic demographic than Easton mass, which is pretty high middle class or whatever. And so we saw both worlds, which was really good for my childhood. And it really, you know, taught me how to just interact with every type of person you could think of. Um, you know, some of my best friends, at the pizza shop were the drivers, right? And they would, we would hang out in the back while they're waiting for their next call and, you know, wrestling and stuff like just being chaotic. Um, but we really just had an awesome upbringing in that sense and really, really close family. And to this day, we're super close. And one of the coolest outcomes of that is my entire family where we all own our own businesses. So, I own Doza Visuals. My sister owns a company called Wagging Tails, which is a doggy daycare, like full service. She owns seven vans. They pick up your dog. They feed your dog. They bring them back in the afternoon. Um, and that's in Easton and serves all the towns around. And then my brother owns a company called Rev T, which is an IT um, AV company. And he installs conference room TVs for like huge companies and large fancy universities. Um, Mm. And he's, he's based out of Canton. And then my father has a insurance business. So we're all still doing it. Um, I think my mom's terrified every day because of that, because the uncertainties of working (laughs) for yourself. And we saw that growing up, Um, you know, there was a recession after nine 11, like a a little recession and that really hurt our pizza shop. And, you know, our family went from being very comfortable, you know, probably middle to upper middle class to frankly, you know, almost losing our house and stuff like that. And that was pretty traumatic on um, being a child going through that. And since we were so heavily involved in the pizza shop, we all kind of understood what was going on. We were there every day, but we learned and, you know, we saw my parents' resilience through that, which was unbelievable. Um, you know, in those moments, that really shows who you are 
And that's why to this day, my parents are my heroes for sure. Um, and they just, you know, started over. They, they had to sell the shop and my father was like, I don't know what to do. And he started a new business. He learned something completely from scratch. And I think that's the most heroic, incredible thing someone can do, especially middle aged. I think he was in his late forties or maybe fifties when he did it, which is unbelievable. So that's a long story short, but nice. I, I wouldn't change anything in my childhood and my upbringing for anything. That's really cool. And uh, jump cut to the last few minutes and share that with your family and especially the last 30 seconds with your father um, and your mother, like the, the two of them, you know, the, the way that they're your sort of heroes. And like, we even talked about this pre-podcast, like sort of like who are your role models growing up? It's like easy answer for you. It's your parents. Yeah, I actually, it's, it's awesome. funny. I can see behind my computer. So we're probably going to talk about this, but I, we just had twins <laughs> uh, and my twins are almost seven months old and I can see my mom holding my daughter Quinn right now. And it is the most beautiful sight you'll see. There's nothing better than watching your parents um, hold and take care of your children yeah. and them becoming grandparents yeah. is the greatest thing. Yeah. Well, that's a good, like, let's, let's go there next. Like talk about, so you had twins and it's interesting. Like I particularly thought, thought it was interesting how you, when, when asking you about sort of juggling, running your own business with being a new parent, to twins, um, you know, the talk, talk, the good, the bad and the difficult, um, and, and talk about sort of the different, the context switching between like CEO business owner and like you know, chief assistant to your wife. Yeah. Um, what's that been like, but ultimately being, you know, owning your own business, I think has given you a lot of flexibility to create new schedules and new habits to be present in all places as, as challenging as that can be at times. Yeah. I mean, Listen, anybody who has had kids, it's the most beautiful thing you could ever experience. I never, ex I knew I was going to be in love with these kids, but not to this level. You know, I couldn't be more in love and sometimes like addicted to hanging out with them, which is hard yeah. when you uh, do need to get back to work. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it's the most beautiful thing, but it's the hardest thing by far I've, we've ever done. Um, and if there's any parents listening who have, our parents have multiples and it's a tight community, thank God, but it's just a different animal. Um, you know, luckily being self-employed, I make my own schedule. I work whenever I can or want. Um, obviously the more I work, the more money I make, but that also means if I prepared myself for properly and saved properly, then I could take some more time off than your average person who works a nine to five. And that was the most valuable thing. I could ever, you know, ask for, you know, essentially over the last six months, I've, I've been working and still like, you know, there's still revenue and everything coming through, but it doesn't feel, it feels very different. I'm working at nights when they're sleeping. Um, but I'm there for them a lot during the day, you know, but one of the coolest things is once we had to make a decision, my wife is an occupational therapist in elementary school. And once we had to make a decision, you know, we have twins. Is this even, you know, what do we want to do? do does one of us want to stay home? And she, she wanted to stay home because, you know, it, it's your kids and it's awesome. So, and we had that opportunity to do that. And as a, you know, I still feel really young and immature with the business and life. It's terrifying to become the sole income of your family, especially now that, um, 
I'm responsible for two more human beings, which is crazy. But at the same time, it drove me from a business standpoint and creatively like way further than I ever expected. I guess I really needed that push. Um, so at this point, it, it's really, you know, we talked, I talked, told you about it. It feels like, you know, during the day when I'm helping out a little bit, but not as much, I'm, you know, I'm totally in control of the dose of visuals world. I'm the CEO and, you know, I'm creatively, I'm, I'm watching movies, just getting ideas and doing my thing, listening to music. So I'm always ready and fresh with new ideas for the next project. And then, you know, for lunch, I might snap out and hear a crying baby and help Katie and whoever's also helping us up for that day. And then it's like, Katie, what do you need? You know, she's in charge. Um, like her assistant or VP, you know, we, we really are mm-hmm. trying to split it a lot. But at this point, it has to become more her and I have to work more. So the balance is just mm-hmm. crazy. And, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I think this is my life moving forward. And you're becoming a parent for the second time too. And um, there's this split mental state that's so hard to deal with when you have two and there's issues with both of them or happiness with both of them. And you do have to choose, you know, it, it's, it's emotionally draining. It's, you know, it, it comes down to, it started the day of the C-section for the twins they pull them out and they put them in two corners of the room and their teams on each one. And my wife's cut open and you don't know what's going on. This is my first time. And then the doctor's like, okay, we're going to take one to the NICU. We're going to take the other one out. Who do you want to go with? Do you want to stay with mom? And immediately you're just like, how do you make that decision? And that kind of feels like life now. Like, how do you make those decisions on where you need to be with your time? Because now time is so valuable and there's way less of it. Um, But in in the grand scheme, it's really pushed me further to be a better person, be a better business person. And really, it's been really cool to just be be able to be there so much for them and my wife in particular. That was a lot of different things, but (laughs) I hope that answers your question. it did. And I mean, I wrote down, I was looking at your kind of answered on this topic pre-podcast and I just wrote down like new superpowers. Yeah. And, and <laughs> like you basically get new superpowers. You do. And, and you probably hear it. My boy, I'm still like going through it. It's super emotional. Yeah. And I'm an emotional dude. You know, I'm an artist at heart. It's emotional. And the whole experience is just shocking. You know, this is our first kids. So it's, it's just a lot at once. And look, you know, you're as a new parent, you're learning everything and everything's doubled for us. So it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's just, it's wild. But I, you know, it's, it's euphoric at the same time. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you kind of touched on, which kind of gets, gets us back to that that narrative we're at, we're like from five to 17, you work at the, you work at pizza, et cetera. You know, you're part of the family business. You got that little recession after the, you know, dot-com burst of the early 2000s. So then you go out, like you're making, you're making your way to, you end up going to UMass. And I kind of, I want to kind of pick up on that, but I also want to like double click on the types of habits that you developed 
as an adolescent, as a teenager on the sports front, on the health and fitness front, because you know, when you were talking about the context switching between like being a business owner and being a dad, for me, the, my approach to that and, and, and the challenge in there is like, if I didn't get a chance to all day to do something for myself, like jump on the Peloton, go for a walk or go to the gym and work on my recovering, you know, Achilles yeah. surgery from last year. Um, I make a point at the end, like at, towards the end of the day, if like my daughter's home, like I'll like, I'll dip and tuck down. Like I'll like slide downstairs in the home gym and I'll do like a really quick, like 10 minute, like workout and just, I'll do something for myself. Uh, but I'll also just like, there's something like there's like, it helps me mentally shift, breathe, kind of feel good, like kind of reset a little bit. And then go be really present and like sit down with my, like we sit down like just about every night and like have dinner together. And I usually make dinner. I make dinner in our nice. family. Um, so yeah, so I think like that, you know, and so kind of relating your, your childhood and how much sports were important to you. And I'd be curious if that's some of the stuff, like some of the, you mentioned, you know, pre-podcast, the importance of like health and fitness, like even today to kind of work through it all. I'd love to hear a little bit about those tips and tricks now that are working for you, but then it'd be cool to talk about like, though where that all started as a as an athlete and i think um and then we can talk a little bit about baseball because you put it really well like i was i played all sorts of sports growing up and um yeah i hadn't thought of it this way but you fail you fail the most in baseball by far by far (laughs) (laughs) so you were a baseball player in particular and i think you know learning how to fail um um, but learning the value in like competition, getting up, going and just, and the value in like, um, pushing yourself, you know, increasing your heart rate, like, like getting, um, doing something for your, your physical well being is, is really important to like having the overall like happiness quotient that you need to thrive in life. Yeah. Listen, the greatest thing I ever discovered was running. Um, and I'm terrible at it. But when I was in high school, you know, for some reason, I think a friend of mine joined, I joined the cross country team and, you know, I'm definitely like an ADD kid and putting me in the woods, consistently active, just cleared my head on a daily basis, made me healthier, gave me some social interactions because, you know, we'd go for these long jogs and, you know, our coach would tell us, do a walking a talking pace today and it's the best you talk for an hour and I love to talk as you could probably tell. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that has carried over my entire life since, um, even though it's my worst sport by far, but it's my favorite by far. Um, running to me is just a, it's meditation. It's my time, but specifically running in the woods, there's nothing, I don't know what it's doing to my brain. I don't know what it just, I feel, you know, I feel like I just took drugs every time I do it and I feel like I need to do it. I get I it. I need to do it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately right now I haven't been able to get back into it and I'm trying to find that time and I think it's coming and I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to most. Um, as we settle into having babies, <laughs> um, but yeah. going back to baseball, you know, from a very, very early age, I think I was five, I became just absolutely obsessed with the game of baseball, you know, to a point where every single Red Sox game I would 
stand in my living room with a bat. And this is one of the coolest things about my parents. <laughs> they let me do this. And I would swing every time there was a pitch. So I would swing either side super hard. And then I developed a really hard swing, you know, and from an early age, I was probably hitting the ball harder than most kids. Um, you know, a quick little story. And I, this was awful, but you know, I was playing pretty competitive summer ball. I think I was like, maybe this was, I was like 12 years old, but I had developed, you know, using my hips in baseball quicker than other kids. So I could hit really hard line drives And this poor pitcher on the other team. I just got back. It was his first time pitching since breaking his arm. And I drove a line drive right at his arm and rebroke his arm. Oh, it's no. awful. But I swear to God, I think I hit that ball 90 miles an hour at the time. And it was just, but I don't know where I was going with that, but it was just, I was just became obsessed with the game and yeah. I was, became very stubborn. So when everybody was like, what are you going to do when you grow up? I was like, I'm going to play baseball. I'm going to play baseball. I'm going to play right. baseball. Well, that's where I wanted to go with this too, is like, you wanted to play baseball, you want to play baseball. And then I'm curious, like when the switch flipped and the reality check came in, all right, maybe baseball's a tough path. Yeah. They got all these tiers of minor leagues, et cetera. I don't even know if I could play in college, all that. And at what point did create like did you realize well i'm creative and and photo video became a, an interesting maybe initial like hobby and interest yeah I, I had always been creative you know i liked poetry i'd write poetry when i was really kind of down um and i loved music music's always been a massive part of my life just as a hobby um listening to it but about the end of high school senior year I had played so much baseball, you know, every season and I started to get really burnt out. And, but coincidentally that year was our best, my best baseball year in terms of team. We won the state championship um, at all Rams high school. And the year before that I had torn my PCL running track um, in the winter. So I had just transitioned from my favorite position, which, which was catcher and to outfield and the transition actually worked really well. Um, but by the end of that tournament season, when we finally won, I was kind of like, I think I'm just done. I think I'm done. I was just, my body was messed from catching. Um, my knees are still, they pop every single time I bend down with my kids, they pop. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go to college and figure something new out. And soon enough in college, I was invited to work on my cousin's movie set in New York. He was doing a personal project at the time. And I was just a PA and I absolutely loved it. And at, after that, I started taking classes and I started um, writing and screenwriting. And I just became obsessed with it in the same way I became obsessed with baseball. But luckily it's a more sustainable obsession and not as hard on the body. Nice. That's cool. So, so you go to UMass for four years. What was your major? Oh, I started out, I yeah. started out chemistry with the intention of joining the pre-med track and okay. it went from chemistry to walking out of a physics class, basically saying, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. Going to a counselor and then just being like, Hey, I really liked being on set. Like what, what does that mean? They're like, Oh, you should get into communications. And so I, I studied communications, which at a school like UMass, 
is pretty much where they put all the athletes. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's an awesome major and it's, but it, it's very broad and you really have to be self-motivated to find weird little niche within the large broad major. And I did, I, I found video, I found filmmaking, um, and screenwriting in particular became my passion at that point. Interesting. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, that's the, the gift and the curse of liberal arts. Like I would say, you know, more gift than curse yeah. because you can dabble in a bunch of things and you can pivot a bit and then you can make the most of it of what you want. You can kind of double click into a concentration or two. Yeah, what, did, what did you study? I went to Boston University for communications. So I was pretty certain that I wanted to go into comms. So then I just looked only at schools that had comms programs that seemed to be very like good, but had a range. So even within, but even, you know, at, even at BU, it was, a, it was a liberal arts education. So I was able to do a constant, I did a constant, I did multiple concentrations outside of comms. Like I did one on Soviet politics. Whoa which I'm, I'm fascinated with history. I did another, I did a concentration on us history. Um, and, and then in communications, I initially was concentrating on advertising within. Um, and I did actually, ultimately, um, my degree was, was, was in advertising and comms, but I actually took just as many, um, journalism and public relations courses as I did advertising courses. Like I kind of hedged, my bets and took a few, you know, the thing that I took advantage of because I was in, you know, I, I had solid grant money going, but was incurring some debt and like needed to be in the best position possible to make money after. So, um, yeah, there's like extra credits to use when you're paying for college. Like, like at BU, there was always like two or four more credits that you didn't have to take and you could still like, you know, satisfy that year. And I just always maxed out my credits and took like an extra class. Um, so I did a lot of extra classes and was able to like, so, so like, you know, I ended up going the public relations, like earned route in sort of communications. Um, but I had just as much an education in advertising. So it makes sense that a lot of my communications, um, abilities, like I deployed them for like advertising technology companies during that, like ad tech wave of the late two thousands, like 2010s, um, yeah, so that's, that's a no, lot that's about, amazing. I had no idea background. about your uh, <laughs> your history passion. That's so cool. That's so cool. I'm a nerd. I have my wife watching um, Vikings Val- Valhalla right now. <laughs> yeah, I love it because it's it is enough. There's enough uh, historical accuracy and figures from history that just has me like living on. Like I'm a I'm a guy that watches sports and like frequently visits Wikipedia because I want to know the backstory. I mean it's spoil like should this be a surprise like fine like being the founder of boston speaks up but i love the backstory behind people and i love like the hit i love the history i love individuals like history i like talking to you about I, i'm it's it's cool to hear about um that you know your high school team winning a state championship like fascinates me i want to like look that up after and like see who you played against and stuff uh but yeah it's just something in me that's that that i find interesting sort of like i think there's int- it's really interesting to learn about people's past, culture's past, society's past. And um, like the U.S. history classes I took, like they were really, the history department at BU was really special. Like there was a course, the entire semester was just U.S. history from 1945 to 1968. Um, And then there was a class that picked up at 68 to present. And like there were just like multi multiple weeks focused on like the Monterey Pop Festival, which was like kind of the pre-Woodstock. And then what, and it's like, there was like, it, it was a lot of like how pop culture coalesced with, with, with politics. And, 
it's really interesting. And there's, I, I, I still to this day, I draw on a lot of lessons. Um, I probably draw on the most lessons of, of like from the past to, to kind of inform, you know, how I hypothesize, you know, where the puck is going in the, in the kind of present future. Do you, so do you have an era that you're really, really obsessed with or your favorite era of his, history? I don't. Um, I keep finding I have new errors that I'm interested in. I would say like if I were to pick, I would pick like pre-civilization. So like folks generally, archaeologists would say that civilization started 6,500 years ago. I do not agree with that. Um, I would say that there are very sophisticated advanced civilization that existed at least during the Ice Age. Um and you know, anytime between twelve and twenty-four thousand years ago. And if folks want to check out, and we can talk about your recommendation too. If, if folks want to check out ancient uh, apocalypse, it's a interesting eight-part um, documentary series on Netflix that sort of explores like a lot of interesting evidence this that would Grand suggest that Hancock we need to rethink. One? Yeah. Is this? What um, is this? I don't know if it's Graham yeah. Hancock or not. Look, yeah, it's 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 called Ancient Apocalypse, wow. um, and he's not an archaeologist, which is very right. clear as you start watching because I think there's a lot of friction with that community. But he's a journalist that just oh. asks a lot of questions and meets a lot of experts around the world and showcases a lot of evidence that would suggest there's um, all the modern civilizations that we, um, you know, that whether it's the Aztecs, the Egyptians, et cetera, they worship like the same gods from the, you know, with stories about the same great flood and the, and, and there's, and there's evidence in some of those places where if you go you, you're deeper in the ground, there's, there's, um, there's, there's, there's modern, what, what feels like more modern structures beneath the structures we found that existed and predate what we believe to be the, original advanced civilizations so, of 65 so, years okay, ago. So, okay, so the big question, does Atlantis exist? So actually that's an episode. Um and it's like Atlantis does Atlantis specifically exist? No. I'm not getting into conspiracy <laughs> theories here like I, but I will say that there is that much of the evidence of our prehistory is is under the ocean, is underwater and there's some really interesting um structures that exist um not too far off of um, like like southeast from Florida, but there's some there's some there's some things underwater that have been discovered that definitely predate um, when we think when we when when archaeologists believe uh, civilizations would have the ability to create these kind of structures. Um, so I think why the At- Atlantis myth will just I'll just call it that for now. Why why that why it exists? I think is because there's enough you know, evidence that would suggest that there's a lot to be discovered underwater. This you is, know, that was, that was once land. This is my favorite thing I've heard from you. So by far, this is awesome. <laughs> this, well, clearly we found, yeah. clearly we found your next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to talk about this all the time and just get paid <laughs> for that. Um, because I would love to just research and research and like spend a lot of time. It was funny, actually, I would love that you're picking up on it because and listeners may be like, what are these guys talking about? Uh, but some will be like, this is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I love history. And, you know, it's, I, awesome. it's my wife, my wife's pregnant. She, you know, a few weeks left till the due date and uh, a bit more tired these days. So she'll, she'll fall asleep early some nights. And I, where I, I was naturally inclined to like, uh, as I was 
combing through Netflix to watch Ancient Apocalypse and and kind of binged it every night she fell asleep over the course of like a, a few days. Yeah. Um, and I thought to myself after, like, wow, I really do love this stuff. Um, and actually, one other, you know, it wasn't a concentration because I didn't meet the requirement to be officially a concentration, but one other type of um, elective that I took at BU with my brother, who's 19 months younger than me, and he also went to BU, we took archaeology together. That's awesome. And it was super cool, like just kind of really, really getting an intensive um, knowledge transfer on the the evolution of like the homo species and, 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 and sort of what was happening in the world 35, 38,000 years ago and the commingling and in, in between sort of like Pro-Magnons and Neanderthals and like how the homo sapien species came to be like in the migration patterns of people. Um, it fascinates me. And, and I just think it's really cool. And then as you, as, and it's neat cause then you kind of travel. I remember going to London and, you know, being like, oh, I got to go to the ruins where like the Roman Empire stretched. Um, like it's just, there's so much history like beneath us. And, and a lot of it's in the ocean. And you, you look at guys like, um, oh, what's the director of, um, it's famous director of uh, Avatar. Oh, James Cameron. Uh, James Cameron. James Cameron. Like, did you know like how fascinating he is with this stuff yeah. too? Like I, maybe I have him on a podcast because he's like, he goes and dives himself. Like he explores underwater. And that's why I think, you know, I haven't watched Avatar two yet. I was a big fan of the first oh, one. Yeah, um, but there's there's a lot to be said about like what exists kind of beneath the surface of the world we currently know. I think he's gone the deepest in the ocean by any human, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, it's like something crazy impressive like that. Yeah. Zach, just look what we yeah. just unlocked and, out of you right now. This is amazing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 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 the thing is like it, some people may hear that and they're just like, Oh cool. That guy just like is crazy and loves to dive. But like, I'm the type of person like you are. That's yeah. like, why, why did James Cameron do that? And like the why behind that is because he's really fascinated with the prehistory that exists underwater. Hey man, it, it's, it makes you an interesting person. What's the point to this life if we're not exploring these wild fascinations? So, Yeah. Well, like, and, and honestly, like, I, I just riffed and riffed about my <laughs> nerding out on history and it sounds like something we can relate on over yeah. time. Um, but sort of like back to your story and, and a sort a story in particular, I, I'm excited for you to share kind of fully with me and listeners is some of the work that you've done, uh, for shooting touch and the work you did in Rwanda and and we referenced this earlier in the podcast, but the time you spent with the goat, Jackie yeah, yeah, yeah. in Rwanda, like how did that all come to be? Cause I, you know, you go and like, I like, I think I linked to it in the, in the, in the Boston speaks up like written posts. Like there's, you know, the, the ESPN article Jackie did like has got all, all the photographies from Chris Cardoza. And, and it's just like, I don't know. It's cool. I'm like, I'm like proud to like that, 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 that's like a proud moment. Um, I'm sure in your life and one that was probably really life changing. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's by far the, you know, one of the greatest life changing moments for me has been going to Rwanda. So I'll back it up. It all started when I was a video production temp at Reebok. Once again, a guy named Justin Kittredge hit me up, you know, at the time the temp or intern was in charge of setting up rolling TVs in conference rooms on top of our editing duties or filming duties. So he called me up and he said, Hey, I need help setting up an Xbox. So I went up and 
I set up an Xbox for him and his his intern at the time, Dimitri. Shout out to Dimitri, who's uh, he's at Puma now. And um, I made friends with these guys, and I found out Justin started a basketball nonprofit with his wife Lindsay called Shooting Touch. And I, I started googling it when I went back to my space, and I found out they were based in Rwanda. And at the time, I was obsessed with documentary filmmaking and in particular vice documentaries. And I would just like, I didn't give a shit. I just messaged him back. I was like, Hey, I really love your nonprofit. Can you send me to Rwanda? And basically his response in summary was like, yes, sure. And that's the type of guy Justin is. He's just super welcoming and willing to help anybody who's willing to just go for it. So a couple years Way to take the shot, by the way. That was great Dude, taking the I, shot. I just don't hey, care. as someone who swung at every single pitch That's that right. was thrown during a Red Sox game, I'm not surprised. You're just like, all right, let me take a swing yeah, at this I one. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I, I always feel, you know, and it's probably like an anxiety or something, but I'm, I'm always like, okay, what's the next thing? Like, I don't want to wait around for things to happen. And it's just how I feel. There's not anything in particular I've been doing to develop that feeling. I just always feel that way. And I'm always trying to go after the next thing. Um, now, at the time, I was just obsessed with Vice. I was watching Vice documentaries in college because I was the male person at my dorm. And it was just time on the computer. I had nothing to do. And, you know, I was obsessed with their one in Liberia. So I became obsessed with Africa. And... I had developed these video skills at Reebok and um, sorry about that. And I, I hit him up and he was like, yeah, let's go. So a couple years later, we made it actually happen. And that was my first trip. And then I kept going back and I, I would shoot stills and video and I'd make these little documentaries. And it all started with the first video. Um, I went with just shooting touch was with a couple of them. Um, and just to quickly summarize Shooting Touch, the, Shooting Touch yeah. uses basketball as a tool to foster education and even gives health care to women and children in Rwanda and then specifically girls in Boston. Um, they they build basketball courts yeah. right next to health clinics so yeah. that they yeah. create a community and that gets these kids in teams to go into that clinic to get tested for HIV, to learn about mosquito nets and malaria prevention. Um, and it just has created this insane community in a small country that's still recovering from the genocide and is still dealing with poverty and all sorts of things that come with a developing nation. So I went over there to t- start yeah. telling this, those stories. And the first story I told, I came back and I had all the stuff to edit and I said, we need a voiceover. And Justin and Lindsay from Trinity Hutch were like, well, Jackie McMullen's on our board. And I was like, okay, can we get her to do the voiceover? And they're like, yeah. And she did it. And she was amazing. Of course, she's Jackie McMullen. She's the greatest of all time. And she was amazing. And she was like, yeah, I need to go someday to Rwanda. And I was like, well, if you go, I'm going to come too. And, you know, five, six years later, we went. And there, uh, you know, at the time she was going to Africa to write a story about Cameroon um, because Joel Embiid had just come up through Cameroon and there were a few other players coming up and ESPN was sending her out there. And she was like, well, I 
you know, I really am into shooting touch. I want to go to Rwanda too and tell a story. And Justin and Lindsay said, okay, Chris, we want to send you two to capture this whole thing. And we quickly, Jackie and I quickly became good friends and we worked together that whole trip. You know, we would just be, we would film anything. We would film interviews with women um, about their new passion for basketball. You know, we're talking uh, women in their, you know, 40s, even all the way up to their 70s who just learned the game and are treating basketball as a outlet away from their everyday duties for the really the first time in a lot of their lives to have this fun hour of exercise and health. But really, it was more about community and just hanging out with other women. Um, Rwanda still has a lot of um, old notions of the role of a man and a woman. So a lot of the things Shooting Touch is doing there is to empower women to help them break out of those notions. Um, so most of the women are just are working all day farming and taking care of a lot of kids typically. And then their husbands are expecting them to take care of them when they get home and can off, often be pretty cruel in these rural villages. So playing the game of basketball became a little contentious for that for those families, mm. but more importantly, it became, you know, the passions of all these women. And we went out there and captured it. And Jackie was kind enough to get me to do the stills for her article. And that article has now, you know, spread all throughout the basketball community and it's it's still alive and that's something i'm so blessed to be able to be a part of that's cool what what was your so tell share your like favorite most interesting story from that trip with jackie uh, so so there's a couple you know on the lighter side we were in this village <laughs> called rukara um which is in the east province in very rural it takes you know you're going down miles of dirt road and it's just kind of quite the adventure and you get to this court and there's literally a thousand kids that play at this court and it's just crazy but we you know the whole time every time we went to a new court i'd get my camera out and jackie would you know kind of reporter on the on the street and we'd start talking to the camera about what's going on there and something you know what what had shooting touch done there so we're talking in the middle of the road and all of a sudden, you know, mid sentence, we start hearing the bells of a cow and we started hearing people kind of screaming and running. And what happened was somebody's cow got loose and she, without a beat, Jackie just kind of acknowledged it and made a great joke about it as, and then I turned my camera and I have the footage online. I'll have to share it. And we acknowledged it and we laughed a little bit and she kept going like a pro because she's incredible and just continued on explaining what was happening on the court. And then that's awesome. on a little deeper level, you know, we, what we were doing and this goes kind of goes back to a lot of the work I do, even just with brands is we were doing these intimate interviews. So we would go to homes and sit with, um, women and Jackie would just have these conversations with them and I would film it. And, uh, you know, these are pretty heavy interviews often about surviving the genocide are um, sometimes about domestic violence, but then also about basketball. And that's when they're, you know, that's when everybody would light up and they would riff and because they're all just lovers of the game, but really just 
they're all just happy to have lovers of the outlet to have the outlet and finally be treated properly and you know be able to prove to these husbands sometimes that they're bringing value to their family more you know a lot of times these guys would be like why are you going to play basketball that's a game you're why aren't you taking care of the kids and cooking me dinner and you know over time it proved to them there was way more value to to that and you know they were able to join this community with shooting touch some of them brought you know which gives you health care and they brought health care to their home you know health insurance the whole family gets health insurance through this programs and they brought a ton of value and it, it really proved them wrong and we got to see that in person you know at some points i even saw it, like jackie even confronted them and she said look what they're look what they're bringing home from the court this is incredible and it, it really was amazing that's cool. Is there a um, future potential collab between you and Jackie to go back to all that B-roll and make a little documentary? So we, we've done some stuff already. Um, yeah, definitely. It's always, you know, my work in Rwanda and in particular shooting touch is by far my greatest career joy and passion. And that now all includes, you know, we're a family, you know, it's a cliche, but we are. You know, and that includes Jackie. That includes a few people um, who work on the ground in Rwanda and in Boston. Um, And every year we all meet and talk about what stories we want to tell more. Um, I I haven't talked to Jackie because the pandemic's been so busy. And she, um, I think she stepped to the side of ESPN. I'm not totally sure what her, um, where she is at right now in her career. So, but we're always all open to it. You know, we, we even were on that trip with um, Amy Latimer, who um, is the head mm-hmm. of the garden, the TD garden. So it was really just this unreal trip of just incredible women um, who I learned an in- insane amount from. Um, and to this day, we're all super tight. Nice. I love that story and all the work that you have done and continue to do like with, shooting touch and and as it relates to the to specifically to rwanda but it's it it definitely but it kind of ties back to boston a little bit too like there's 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 stories and change and and as as is well documented in recent years like we got a long ways to go here in america um and i think one of the things that drew me to you early when i was in when we were introduced was this work you did in like do in rwanda and just some of the like shared intentions we have to take a similar approach to like documenting and, and, and storytelling um, in Rwanda to sort of to Boston and, and just folks, you know, that are from maybe, maybe they're from underserved communities. Maybe they're from communities where like there's inequities between men and women, or there's, you know, there are just the inequities that exist between different cultures or just folks that live in different neighborhoods or whatnot. Um, I, I hope in the future an intention that I have set and you, I think we've set together that I'm, I'm sharing with the world is like doing more storytelling, like the storytelling you've done for shooting touch about the causes in Boston. Right. And, and kind of revisiting with a lot of folks I've interacted with on the podcast, whether it's resilient coders or tech for hood or hack diversity and the Dearborn STEM Academy and, and going and sort of like taking more of a documentary filmmaking approach to highlighting some of the change makers that are responsible for these organizations, but also like the individuals, like the participants, like 
the 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 folks that deserve like, better shots and pathways to um, to and opportunities uh, towards different types of success in life. And it, and I look forward to what the how the as the years unfold, like what a collaboration between us might mean just for like Boston. There's so many stories just in Boston and, you know, Boston's also one of the greatest world hubs of nonprofits. You know, I think that's because of Harvard and MIT, but it's everywhere. I mean, partners in health is based here. Um, You know, because of my work in Rwanda, I got to learn a lot about them and Paul Farmer um, and his legacy and they're all based in Boston. It all comes out of here. There's, it's just endless storytelling about doing good to the world. And that kind of goes back to the small town making a huge footprint on the world. And it's, it's so true. It's so true. And through authentic, just documenting storytelling, it's first an easier approach to doing this, but it's a more genuine it's often more entertaining and impactful approach. Yeah, totally. And that sort of begs the question also, where do you see those visuals in five years? Like start to paint the ideal canvas of how, like, like the types of projects, like obviously like, what kind of team you have, what kind of, but, but I'm curious, like what kind of things are you working on in an ideal state and especially vis-a-vis Boston? Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot right now because this is a huge kind of changing moment in my life in general with the twins. Um, you know, right now it's just myself full time. And then I hire a lot of contractors and assistants. Um, you know, I'm starting to work closely with you guys, which has been a great community outlet for me. Um, and I was kind of writing down my resolutions in five years, just ideas. And I really want to create a studio, probably locally down here on the South Shore. Um, that is a combination between my Doza Visuals sort of creative agency, video production and photography with art gallery, you know, with this work in Rwanda, but also other artists. And then I want to input a culinary portion and obviously that stems mm. back to my pizza shop days yeah i don't yeah. know what that's gonna be yet but i've become very uh, i've always been obsessed with the culinary world and i'm just you know at this point i just want to spend my days working doing something that i just absolutely love and if i have these opportunities to create uh these places that could be inspiring to others and maybe even help others too um, I'm going to do that. You know, I really feel like if I can, I need to. So I'm, I think that's where I'm headed. You know, I, I'd say in five years, nice. we'll have some sort of gallery or something like that. But in terms of yeah. clients, I just want to keep, I just want to keep telling really authentic stories, um, for clients that more align on my vision. And that is happening. It is happening already. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Cool. I'm going to share some intentions back Please. with you. Some that I think are joint. And then like one that is even, it's like an aspiration that I'm curious if it gels with you for like how I see you in five years. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So that's, let's Lay do it. Lay it down. Let's Zach. do it. Well, 
first on the on the sort of gallery studio front i think we've talked about this like so, like some of what i was up to in venice beach have i shared a with you uh, I, so like i had this space with my partner at the time um so it's like a studio space it's like an art gallery um big like farm like house doors like you could roll a tractor into it like really cool funky space 201 san juan anyone who's been to la and like those like sole bicycles main street like um venice like the venice sign with the venice lights it's like a couple blocks from there it's like it's like downtown venice um it's this really funky space that has all this crazy energy. The Eagles used played some of their early like pop-up shows in LA there. Jack Nicholson owned the building for a while, always making it kind of like this like artist haven. We actually were moving into the built, like moving in like as kind of keepers of the space. Cause it's not like we weren't a traditional business and we weren't coming in and like make an office space, but we actually cleared out a room in that um, a, a, essentially like it was like a Venice bedroom crash pad for Jack Nicholson's daughter. Um, And like, there was like a bed and all these like family things. And it was, it was crazy, but the space was this big open space. And uh, what we did is we started having this, like we were sort of like awarded the opportunity to, you know, maintain, you know, we paid a lease, but like to, to be in the, in the structure, one of the things that we were going to do is we were going to foster community so we started having a Venice variety show and we called it, uh, we did it like we, we kind of like in, in LA, like there's a first Friday where like on Abbott Kinney, which is, it's not the same, but it's kind of like a Newberry street for like LA it's in Venice and it's this whole street. It's like companies pay $15,000 a month for rent just to like, you know, have their company just be there. So it's kind of like, you know, like Nike town being on Newbury yep. street kind of yep. thing. Um, and so like Abbott Kinney has first Friday and they clear out all the cars and all these, um, food trucks line up and it's like, it's like a thing. And so we were like, well, what if we did like a first Thursday kind of like event? And it was, we partnered with a local stand up comedian and he curated a bunch of stand up comics. And then we had a few local musicians and so we had sort of like stage performers. So we had like comedy like show and it was like emceed by the, the comedy lead intermittent, like musical acts happening inside. And then we had outside, we had artists like, like painting and doing things on canvas, like outside the building, we had art displayed inside. We, you know, this was shortly after um, Trump was elected. And like, there was this artist who was, like we, we partnered with to do like a first amendment movement, which is just like, we're not trying to take a political span, stance, but we hope that people use their free speech yeah. for good. So it was like our first, it was a first for good campaign. So we had a huge first amendment, like can- on canvas, like on the wall of our uh, outside wall of our building. And it's LA 350 days a year. It's not even raining. So like you could just put art on the outside of a building like that. And we had all this spillover in the streets the, the dudes next door were like these OG, like virtual reality storytellers. And like, they work with some game developers and they like had some games and VR headsets. So we had people like doing like VR game competitions, like in one corner of the studio. And we just did that like every Thursday for months. And it was so cool. Like people came from all over LA for this. Like I was people that I had met in Hollywood that ran like cross campus, which is this 
huge like incubator co-working space that the mayor of LA is behind. They're like these huge real estate developers, like super successful, like sweet dudes that live totally across town. Anyone knows LA. It's like not easy to like get from one, you know, borough to the other. They were showing, they started showing up at the events and then Snapchat put us on their map when they were showcasing their real estate in town because Snapchat was in that area. So, and it was just organic. It was just like there are, and, and so I say, I share all that because I too have a vision for like a studio space that's multi-purpose and, and does involve food and, and, and the right kind of like, but in almost in, in a, even in food standpoint, like it allows more types of small bit. So there's like a component for uh, bean trust. If people know like Eric Modell and bean trust, it started as like a pop-up coffee shop in Cambridge innovation center. And now he's got a brick and mortar here in Beverly mass. So it's like, partners like maybe Eric or like the next aspiring like brick and mortar entrepreneurs that have like pizza yeah. or, or coffee or sweet treats, like finding ways for there to be like this kind of co-op, like, like commerce in the front. And then there's like gallery on the wall. Cause here in Beverly, it's like Montserrat college of arts. So there's like arts, like like have like installations come in and out yeah. and support local artists. And then I have this idea for like the back of the studio where it's like, a little production studio and local business owners that don't have money that as we discussed to pay all these exorbitant fees can like fill out the efficient pre-production questionnaire, sign up for a slot and for like a thousand dollars can show up, do an, do a one hour shoot. And then one week later they're, they're delivered a folder of a bunch yes. of rich um, assets for the next, for their website and for all their social marketing for the next year. Um, That's exactly so, we should do that on the North Let's and South Shore. Let's do it. And I have the same theory is I've always wanted, and this is pretty much what I do now is 80% of my work time is spent on commercial stuff, like, or and just for-profit work. And then 20% tends to be for nonprofit work, usually shooting touch. And that time, you know, I'm not making money off of that. And that's what I want. So I want, as I get going further and grow a larger kind of studio, I want to give nonprofits who are doing great work an opportunity to have these amazing stories be told at a high level with efficiently as well to give them these content assets for free. So I'd like to start a little nonprofit section of myself, but it's using yeah. those visuals to do that for free, but all in the same place. And the reason I say a culinary portion is because I really owe my time at the pizza shop to developing my creative itch because my parents never told me what I needed to do or how to make a pizza. Really? They gave me the basics at the beginning, but I'd have this whole ingredient bar, right? I didn't have a dough ball and then I could do whatever I wanted 24 seven so really the pizza shop was my creative studio. I was making bizarre pizzas. I made a banana crust pizza once made with um, confectionery sugar because I screwed up and thought it was flour, but it turns out to be delicious. Um, and that's my goal. I want to just make a space where people can come in honestly, not a lot just for myself that the space is so open to creativity that it's like community hackathon. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but then also mentor and 
show the importance of being a business person on top of that because no one needs to be a starving artist in 2023 yeah. art is everywhere and i want to get rid of that stereotype of the starting artist artist and selling out and so on like it's bullshit like if yeah. you want to be an artist and really be in control you need to make some money and you can make money by still doing art and doing your personal projects totally and it, one thing i want to bring up too is like i gave a pretty succinct overview of like yeah. my vision for this model that I, that that is like 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 somewhat different but like really coalesces with yours and i think that's the beauty of like ideating with yeah. partners and at times i've gotten feedback on like how transparent i am with like business ideas and like i would say to anyone like do it like someone that hears this that has the resources to like acquire like do it and then hit me up and i'll like like i'd love to yeah. support it you know i have these ideas but at some point in time I, and I'm, you know, developing some relationship with real estate developers right now. And it's an interesting group on the North shore. We're like, I want to eventually do this. And you know, I have five, 10, 20 year goals. And so it fits probably somewhere in the five to 10 year range, but I want to do this. If someone can come along to help accelerate it. Great. I also think back to our conversation earlier about like, especially banks, like financial institutions. I mean, at the end of the day, like Money makes the world go around and people and, and consumers need to put their money in banks. And, and it's still like one of the key, you know, look at who the key spenders are on TV. And I'll tell you like, who are the markets that like they're, they're, they're resilient during recessions. And they're like, they're, they're, they always need to be on the offensive to, you know, be in front of consumers. Like, so, you know, banks crying poor is fall short right. on me personally, but if I'm a bank and you look at like a century, um, is it cent Oh, capital one, like yeah, cafes, yeah. they yeah. do a capital one. And like, if I'm a bank, if I, if I, this is my strategy for like financial institutions and there's many, whether it's fidelity, whether it's century bank, whether it's capital one, whether it's Silicon Valley bank, whether it's first Republic bank, all of them, you won't like, you want to really do an end around the whole market and show up in the community, execute the idea yeah. we just talked about on yeah. this podcast. Yeah. It also might help change your uh, perception. <laughs> like, you know, my generation Let's doesn't do that. love banks. I mean, so like maybe that'll No, help. we don't. And Gen Z, I'm talking to young entrepreneurs all the time that are building their own decentralized bank right. solution on Square. Right. <laughs> Literally, right. that's a trend. Right. Like we don't like, we don't trust and banks. And of course so we don't. It I makes think, sense you know, we don't. They all failed making your 2008. Yeah. Making your... Right. Making your bank into a um, internet cafe for the community no. isn't enough. Like getting, giving some Wi-Fi and saying like, Hey, we sell coffee. It's like, no, like you're just like, that's not enough. Like that's, and it's also not cool. It's, and it's like, I see right through that. It feels right? like it's and, pandering and it feels inauthentic. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's like we're late to the game on when companies started putting free coffee and like, booze in their offices we're gonna do it 10 years later and say oh you, maybe you'll come banking with us and all of that end up being yeah. you know a scam <laughs> you know so yeah 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 so there, there's there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity there and I, I don't think it's only i think there's other kinds of organizations but you know think about you know the words corporate social responsibility yeah. come to mind csr like big enterprises have csr budgets they need to have their nonprofit initiatives the way you know where you were going with this idea it, in terms of how there could be a nonprofit component or like 
you know, or, or, or component of like pro bono work for companies that qualify for yeah. it. So small businesses that are kind yeah. of scraping by, like there's a, like there's CSR budgets exist and there's whole business models. I have friends I met out in LA that one created a content contest management platform just to address CSR budgets because they need to be deployed yeah. every year. And so like, you know, fi- like there's existing pipe, pipelines of, of sort of cash that, that could, you know, potentially funnel into these kind of business ventures, but also those companies that have those budgets, it would stand a reason to maybe consider like setting up. I'll give you an example. One of my buddies, um, my buddy runs that contest management platform. One of his clients is yeah. Cisco. And if you look up the Cisco global problem solver challenge, it's run and managed by my buddy Anil Rathi, who's an entrepreneur out of the OG um, incubator space in LA called Idea Lab. A lot of people will know Idea Lab. And the Global Problem Solver Challenge is, is one of the most recognized like startup competitions globally every year. And think like, so Cisco, like, Come move downtown Beverly, get a space set, you know, hit up, hit up some video and Doza and like, let's, let's make some magic. There we go. And listen, I just think (laughs) just like for brands, storytelling in a video format is so powerful that for these nonprofits who are even just starting out, it's invaluable, you know, through the videos I've done for shooting touch for the base in Boston, um, for a ton of nonprofits, it's raised, they raise millions of dollars from them. So if we could come up with a way to do that for nonprofits that don't even have funding yet, and that's a wing of, you know, VCL or Doza Visuals, that's part of the goal, I would say. And that, that there would be yeah. no greater joy in my yeah. life, for sure. Yeah, it'd be cool. It's honestly, it's probably like some sort of a joint, like nonprofit maybe final one C3 that we could do. And I mean, and you know, you know, the type of people we, you know, connect with and, and attract in this world, like, like my creative director, Tyler Scholl, like he's, he's in it for, you know, it's all about purposeful pursuits and doing good in the world. So I think we have the right folks in place to do. And it's also the beauty of the Um, next generation coming up. Like the days of just doing things for money are over. I'd say now we all need money and we need to, but, but there has to be purpose behind everything unless, unless it just, cause then it'll just seem like bullshit if there isn't. Yeah. Well, the cool thing is there's going to be increasing pressure on companies to like have purpose or, or, or if, or have additional, you know, causes that they allow their employee base or their consulting base to like support because Jen, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to bring in some, bring on some lovely, Gen Zers um, on VCL's journey, and it's all about you know it's all yeah. about purpose and their appropriate like cavalier and their demands and their appreciation of of the of the value you know not just in terms of the you know the, the talent that they have but just um, you know honestly like the savvy that they have in terms of like how the how the how, you know how the cons- yeah. consumer mindsets are shifting so. Yeah, it's it's good. It's a good time to be a millennial because I feel like we we understand the his, we understand the past and we've we've gone through a lot of interesting evolutions. Um, my daughter was like just effortlessly <laughs> using my iPhone the other day, and I was like, Mila, I didn't do that for yeah. twenty more years from how old you are right now. So it's like it's 
it's going to be, but, but we're going to be really connected to the next generation, the next generation. And, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Great. We should do it more often. And we, we should, uh, you know, another intention I think we have that I share with you a little idea over email this week is potentially kicking up a new, like almost podcast channel, new podcast show together. Um, and, and, and get in the chat more regularly, which, which I would love to do. And, and I think, you know, we'll obviously still get, you know, we'll still be working together on, on projects and finding, finding ways to, to do some purposeful, uh, work in the, in the world. But, but as we end all podcasts and I'm excited for you to share yours, share your challenge for listeners. So a quick little background on this, you know, when I started yeah. going to Rwanda, this was like the first thing I did after I left Reebok and I had never really left the country before. <laughs> so g- dropping off at like a bus station in the middle of Kigali is a terrifying experience, especially if you're trying, if you think you're a journalist, like I thought at myself and you start just taking photos, which is not the right thing to do. Um, but you got to make mistakes. So, but what I started learning is how to properly approach people and properly take their photo um, with respect and then follow up with them and get them that photo back. And I think that's super important, especially in different cultures, but really even just here. Um, it's so we're not just taking, taking, taking it's, it's really always about giving. Um, so my challenge for everybody listening is, and I think this would be very powerful for everyone's just networking ability, but I think it's going to create a beautiful feeling is, Take a photo of somebody, anyone on the street, a stranger, hopefully, using your iPhone, and then get their information and follow up with them later on and give them that photo. And I think you'll experience something absolutely beautiful. And, you know, maybe Zach and I, I can share a video of that happening for me as well. Um, I actually wasn't there, but one of my best images of all time is a portrait of this woman named Sylvine, who is um, in her mid sixties playing basketball in her Katenge, which is, you know, her African outfit um, with all these colors. And she's just unbelievable woman. And I was able to send her portrait back, you know, a year later and they presented it to her and filmed it. And it's, you know, one of the greatest joys of my life. But on top of that, I try to bring this into my practice on a daily basis and it really teaches you a lot about business, about relationships and about being kind to people and reading people. So that's my challenge. That's cool. That's so cool. And we should bake that in like a link to that video if it's on YouTube or whatever into your like final answer in the written version. I'll cut something up. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Doza, my man, this has been great. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Zach. This is awesome. And it's been um, really beautiful to get to know you and um, becoming friends and now creating our new network. You know, as a solo entrepreneur, it gets lonely, but now I don't feel that way (laughs) when I talk to you and I don't feel that way when I talk with your team. So I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you too. Solo entrepreneurs unite (laughs) and, and, and just comes to come to find out like, we get quite a quite a group of uh, cohorts and collaborators, you know, with us these days. So happy that we're on the journey together. This has been a blast. I'm really looking forward to 
sharing it with the community and maybe nerding out on uh, prehistory in the future. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> All right, brother. All right, Take so care.